The hottest shoe trend is less about fashion and more about function. Get ready to rock your Crocs. They're wildly popular. Fidget spinners seem to be all the rage. The skyrocketing prices for digital art sold as NFTs or non-fungible tokens. It's the newest trend in menswear. This is a male version of the romper. The ice bucket craze reached a crescendo this week. The fad started last June among professional... It seems like every year there's a new and often strange toy trend. And every season brings a new fashion trend that's a little wackier than the last. I still can't figure out why I ever loved scrunchies. Fads in fitness, health, tech, music, and commerce are popping up all the time, too. But what is it about human nature that helps some products, services, and ideas take off like rockets? In this episode, we'll look at how our psychology can cause early trends to snowball and how noticing even a small uptick or downturn in the popularity of a niche product or behavior can influence our decisions. I'm Dr. Katie Milkman, and this is Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. It's a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. We bring you true stories, illuminating predictable quirks of human behavior, that can help or hinder you. And then we examine the latest research in behavioral science. We do it all to help you make better judgments and avoid costly mistakes. This story begins in a suburb called Naperville, which is just outside of Chicago. This is Yemisi. Hi, my name is Yemisi Brooks. Yemisi is a documentary director. Her latest project is about a phenomenon from the early 1990s. There was a cul-de-sac in Naperville called Colorado Court. And in the 90s, this felt like a very lovely place to be, as I understand it. Colorado Court was a typical suburban cul-de-sac with a nice community of friends and families. There were barbecues and playdates and parents carpooling kids to soccer games. Colorado Court was also ground zero for one of the biggest toy trends in history. It begins with a couple of the women who just had discovered these little kind of beanie toys. And so they're tiny little teddy bears, although they are actually all different animals. They fit in the the palm of your hand and they would retail at about $5. So they were the perfect price for you to be able to afford one if you were a kid. And they were being sold not in big box stores, but they're being sold in gift shops and smaller independent shops. Beanie Babies were cute beanbag toys made by the Thai Corporation. That's the company that's led by the reclusive Ty Warner, a man who has been compared to the Wizard of Oz and Willy Wonka. Ty Inc. created several different versions of the toys in the early days, including Legs the Frog, Flash the Dolphin, and Pinchers the Lobster. A couple of the mums had seen these toys, and I think it became a, a sort of thing to do on a Friday. The kid would get their pocket money, and they maybe might say to another kid that lived in another part of the cul-de-sac, hey, do you want to come and buy these Beanie Babies? So it just became a really lovely bonding experience to do with their kids. It became like a fun thing to do. One of those parents was Becky Phillips. So Becky Phillips was one of the ladies that lived in the cul-de-sac in Colorado Court. 
She was a language arts teacher. She also had young kids. Becky and some of her neighborhood friends were buying these toys for their children. It began with just one or two gift shops. And then I guess what happens is your kids go consecutively for a few weeks and they've bought all of the toys. And so then it's like, oh, I wonder which other stores might have them. And so this was very much part of the appeal. And I can just imagine how fun that would have been for a six or seven-year-old. Did you feel like you're going on a treasure hunt? As the kids started completing their collections, some of the parents also got interested in the toys. The inflection point where it changes from kids to adult. So in the beginning, you're just driving your kids to get it right. And you're like, oh, they haven't got it. Let's try somewhere else. And then it becomes the adult saying, maybe I want a little collection of my own. Becky starts talking about just getting a phone book (laughs) and just going through the phone book, looking for toy stores in other cities and just calling toy stores. And then she calls um, the Chamber of Commerce in different places and starts saying, can you help me with this? What began as a few kids looking to find more toys morphed into a small group of parents and friends searching high and low for these stuffed animals. Things started to get serious for Becky and her Colorado court friends. And as this small group became more enthusiastic, others they knew took note. And suddenly, there was a growing list of fellow Beanie Baby collectors. So Becky, being the super organized person that she is, started to formalize things. And so, you know, between some of the folks in the cul-de-sac, they would write things up and things became a little bit more formal. From there, people started advertising in the classified sections of newspapers. And that became a sort of way of trading almost. It was like, hey, I've got three of these, but I am seeking one of those. So that became a just quite rudimentary way to do things. From a few classified ads a trading market grew. Several of the parents and traders wrote price guidelines to help value the rarer toys. And because the Thai company did no press, these folks became the unofficial mouthpiece of Thai Beanie Babies, spreading the news far and wide about the phenomenon. Becky and her peers basically established a secondary market for trading these toys. This all coincided with a revolutionary new marketplace on the World Wide Web eBay really became a way that the craze became accelerated. So in the beginning, it almost felt like a place where you could congregate and you could find out about other Beanie Baby collectors in other states. eBay and some early blogs showed people across the U.S. and around the world that there was a community of Beanie Baby collectors and enthusiasts. And eBay made it easy to see that this community was growing. Fast. In the mid-90s, Beanie Baby sales alone accounted for a huge amount of eBay's business. eBay as a business would look very different if it wasn't for Beanie Babies, which is amazing when you think about it. All of this happened organically. Becky and her friends and others had no idea that their love for collecting Beanie Babies would spread far beyond their little suburban neighborhood. I don't think there was anything particularly premeditated. I think it really came out of, my kids love this, let me drive them around. Oh, actually, this is something that I love as well. So it started small, but grew very quickly over a short period of time. You could almost say it was contagious. We interviewed someone who, in the 90s, owned a few gift shops in Canada. And he told us this amazing statistic, which is that his sales in 1996 from selling Beanie Babies were 2 million. His sales in 1997 were 23 million. So over just a year, you know, and bear in mind that was the 90s as well. That was the amount of money that he, as an independent, as a small independent gift shop owner, could make. He could really make a lot of money. 
Things on the secondary market were going crazy as well. The Thai company caused scarcity by regularly retiring certain variations of the toys. Every so often, they stopped production of certain lines, leading to a frenzied rush to scoop them up before they were gone from the stores. And the prices of these retired toys skyrocketed. They truly became collector's items. It just became a completely different thing. The parents were like, do not touch them. They're going in plastic cases. These are not to be played with. Whereas before, you know, these Beanie Babies had lovely little lives and they were tattered and they were taken to playgrounds and they were stuffed into book bags. But they became something very different. Other businesses got in on the growing trend. McDonald's commissioned Ty to create a series of miniature toys they called Teeny Beanies to sell with their Happy Meals. Lines at the restaurants for these meals with teeny beanies spilled out onto the streets. And at one point, so did the toys. Around the time of Beanie Babies going into McDonald's Happy Meals was there was a spillage from a McDonald's truck carrying teeny beanies. It happened on a five-lane highway and there is helicopter footage of people driving in rush hour down a five-lane highway and slowing down to try and grab Beanie Babies. Oh my God, guys, stop it! This is unbelievable! Several hundred little international bears headed to McDonald's, dumped accidentally in the middle of five lanes of 285 rush hour traffic. And it is the most, I mean, it looks like the most unsafe thing you have ever seen. But people were desperate. People were totally desperate. The craze was getting crazy. There were shipments of Beanie Babies that had to have police escorts. There were UPS men who were being stolen from, being jumped on their daily round. There's a very famous photograph of a couple in a divorce court on their hands and knees with there were a big pile of Beanie Babies that are being separated and they're choosing, you know, this one for you, this one for me. There was a huge fake market. You know, huge amounts of Beanie Babies were being seized because they were fake coming into the country. So it really was like mania in every possible way. That mania enabled some dodgy financial decisions. People started treating Beanie Babies as investments. The artificial scarcity of the retired toys caused people to pay top dollar and to assume that they would just get more valuable over time. Some people built their collections as college funds for their children. Unfortunately for them, it was a bubble, foreshadowed in this clip from Yemisi's HBO documentary called Beanie Mania. Everybody keeps going, how long can it last? And it's like, forever. <laughs> I don't see any end in sight to Beanie Babies at all. You know, people get caught up in these crazes and they think they're going to go on forever. This is here to stay. I don't think the Beanie craze will ever die. People think prices will continually rise to infinity. Six years after Ty introduced Beanie Babies and 253 versions later, these small stuffed animals are sagging on the secondary market. Three different guides show the values of many retired beanies, those no longer made, have dropped considerably. The bubble burst fairly quickly, you know, and you have people who paid hugely inflated prices for a collection of Beanie Babies, and they were worth nothing. There are so many people who have thought that they really were going to sell. They've heard these tales, which honestly, there were not that many people, but there were people who were really smart and sold really quickly and did maybe make enough for their son or daughter's college fund. But those people were few and far between. Interestingly, the Thai corporation never deviated from the recommended retail price. The speculation all happened in the secondary market, 
as did the fallout. Fortunately for Becky Phillips and the other parents from Colorado Court, it wasn't too devastating. After the prices had gone to a certain height, they were like, okay, we're just done. The kids are grown up. We've made our money from it. That was a great time, but, you know, let's move on. They were very tight-lipped about talking about how much money that they made, which I understand and I respect. But let's be real, they made a lot of money. You know, we talk about these women as if they were just soccer mums, you know, trading like $10 here, 20 You know, we are talking about thousands, if not millions in some cases, that these women were making off, you know, small understuffed teddy bears, which retail about $5. Like, these women were smart, and yet there is this idea of them as just, you know, the the carpool mums or the soccer mums. No, they were leaving their jobs and flying internationally, appearing on international shows, appearing at trade fairs. They had their own magazines, and it was really lovely, actually. Becky says it really felt like our moment, you know. We, we almost felt like we were famous and we were really doing something special. Here's Becky Phillips from the documentary. You know, sometimes you reflect on it, but you always go back to the beginning. Nobody really knows where all this started, but we do. It was just a little happy family. And that's what's most important to me, is the ones that I started out with know exactly what we did. So I think it really gave them something as well. And I I think for me, when you watch TV shows or films, like how often do you see 60-year-old women talking about their business practices? It's just not something which we see and we celebrate. So for me to be able to give them a voice, even even though they wouldn't tell me exactly how much they earned. But yeah, I just thought it was an interesting way to look at things. The Thai Corporation still sells Beanie Babies. As of this taping, there were over 80 versions to choose from ranging in price from about $6 to around $25. That's a far cry from the thousands that some people paid at the height of the Beanie Baby trend. The secondary market is now very modest. In fact, you can find many early Beanie Babies at steep discounts. We wanted to shoot some B-roll with a load of Beanie Babies and we didn't have any. And so, you know, one of the producers just went online to see how much, you know, do you think we'll have to pay for a whole set of Beanie Babies? And we just found someone in Staten Island who was like, please come and take them off me for free. So certainly they do not hold what they used to. That said, these little stuffed toys still hold their appeal. I'm just looking behind me. There's about 12 of them, (laughs) which at some point will go. But for now, I'm like, oh, they are quite cute. So, yeah. And so now my little girl, before she goes to bed, she chooses a different Beanie Baby to take to bed with her every night. (laughs) Yamasee Brooks is the director of Beanie Mania. You heard several clips from the documentary courtesy of HBO. You can find a link to the documentary in the show notes and at schwab.com slash podcast. The Beanie Babies story reveals a number of interesting phenomena. You can see how speculation and artificial scarcity can lead to some less than ideal financial decisions. But underlying this story is a pattern that we see in all sorts of domains. And it involves what a behavioral scientist would call a trending social norm or an upward or downward-sloping pattern in people's level of engagement with a product, idea, investment, or behavior. It turns out that our behavior is strongly influenced by what we see other people doing, for better or for worse. Decades of research have demonstrated how eager we are to fit in by adopting popular behaviors. If the majority of our friends exercise, exercise appeals more to us. 
if the majority of our friends own a certain car, we worry we'll be left out if we don't get one too. But new research highlights that we don't just pay attention to what we see the majority of other people doing. We're strongly influenced by our peers even when we see just a small fraction of them engaging with a new behavior, product, investment, or idea, if it's clear that the small fraction is on an upward trajectory. In short, we're immensely influenced by a growth in the interest or appeal of something, even if it's still niche. My next guest is an authority on influence, persuasion, and trending norms. Robert Cialdini is the Arizona State University Regents Professor Emeritus of Psychology and Marketing and the best-selling author of several books, including the mega-bestseller, Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion. Hi, Bob. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Well, I'm looking forward to it, Katie. So the first thing I want to ask you is to define a trending norm. What is that? Well, a trending norm involves a observation or a perception that the number of people who are undertaking an activity, that number is moving in a particular direction. It can be up or it could be down, but it's trending in a particular direction, not just uh, staying static or being uh, inconsistent. And obviously, you have done incredibly important research that we've talked about actually on the show before on the importance of social norms. So what the majority of people are doing, what's the distinction between a trending norm and just a general norm? A trending norm is evidence that the existing norm, that is the number of people who are performing an activity, is changing. A static norm, an ordinary norm, is this is the norm. 65% of people wear their masks during the COVID-19 pandemic. But a trending norm would be at the start of that pandemic, it was 30%. Midway through, it was 50%. By the end, it was 65%. It's so interesting. I think that I know the science on social norms that you've studied shows we're really influenced by what the majority of people are doing. So you tell me 65% of people are, say, wearing masks. I think, gosh, oh my gosh, I haven't been wearing mine. I'm abnormal. I better change. But what I think is so interesting about trending norms, I think, is that you've shown it's not just about the absolute level. Could you talk a little bit about what happens when you tell me, you know, 5% of people were going to the gym last month and and 20% are now. The majority aren't doing it, right? But what happens then? So what happens is if I just tell you 5%, that's the existing norm, right? The existing number of people who are undertaking the activity, that reduces the likelihood that uh, you will do it as well, because it doesn't seem to be the uh, chosen alternative for most people around you. But if I give you evidence that that has changed over the years or over the months from 5% to 20%, now you think there's something going on that's likely to continue into the future. And that makes you think, oh, the majority will soon be moving in this direction, taking this action. And once again, we've got the majority on our side, even though it's the future majority, not the existing majority. It's so interesting. So how did you and your collaborators get interested in studying the impact of these trending norms on behavior? 
Well, I speak to various organizations about the principles of influence, and one of the principles is the idea of social proof, which is essentially what are the majority of people around me doing? And I show how that piece of information spurs people to follow suit. But I would also get questions from the audience that would say something like, well, you know, I've got a new product. It doesn't have the majority of people buying into it. Or I have a startup. I don't have a large market share. What do I do under those circumstances? And I would say, don't use the norm. Because if you have a small number, people will take that as a cue not to get in because very few people are doing it. But then I remembered that in graduate school, I once went to a lecture from somebody outside of my area. He was a perception guy. I was a social psychologist. And he talked about a fundamental kind of tendency in his subjects that if they saw a change in a particular direction, they expected that the change would continue in that direction. And it occurred to me, well, if that's the case, then people who don't have a lot of market share, people who don't have a lot of buy-in for something new, might be able to use the idea of norms changing in their direction to overcome this problem of low levels of behavior suppressing future behavior. If you can say that, well, I have a new product, and last month, 5% of our customers chose this new feature. By the middle of the month, it was 10%, and now it's up to 20%. That might break the domination of the low social norm. So with several of my graduate students, the work was led by Chad Mortensen and Rebecca Neal. We decided to test this idea. Oh, I would love it if you could talk a little bit about your favorite demonstration that trending norms can change people's decisions. One that we did, we were interested in getting people to conserve water. So we showed one group of them a newspaper article that just talked about water conservation, but didn't give any numbers. So in the control condition, we said, read this article. It's about people conserving water. That was the control. They just read about the idea. Another group which we called the static norm, they read that 48% of their neighbors are conserving water. That was the static number, but it was below the majority. A third group, which we called the trending norm, were told that 48% of your neighbors are conserving water, but it used to be 37% three years ago. Now it's moved up to 48%. Then We said, that's the end of the experiment. We were just asking you to read this and give us some information about what you thought. Now we'd like you to be in a consumer preference experiment for a new kind of toothpaste. And we gave them a toothbrush with some toothpaste on it. And we said, please brush your teeth and then tell us how much you like this new toothpaste. And we measured how much water they used while they were brushing their teeth. Compared to the control group, those who were told that It was a minority of people who conserved water. They actually used the most water of any in the whole study because they were told most people don't do it. But those people who were told there was a trend that was still a minority, but a trend to 48%, 
they use the least water of any subjects in our experiment. So clearly, it was the idea of movement in that direction that caused them to undertake action that was consistent with that movement. In addition to loving that study, I also love that it illustrates the breadth of your idea, because when you first started describing it, you were talking about new products and startup companies and and what could they do in order to accelerate excitement when only a small fraction of the population knew about their product so far. But what you show in your research and in that study in particular, it's not like water conservation is a new product. So it doesn't have to be something new. It's just that there has to be an upward momentum in an old behavior or a new behavior, and you can get these effects, which I think is really neat. So Bob, what do you think explains the persuasive power of these trending norms? What's going on? Well, we actually looked at that in our studies, and it was the perception that the norm would continue to trend in that direction. That was the thing that spurred people to say, well, I want to get on board with this because this is the future. Love that. And why do we care what everybody else is doing or what everyone else is about to be doing? We live in what is the most stimulus-saturated, information-overloaded environment in our history. And all that information has increased our uncertainty about what we should do in any given situation. And one way we can reduce that uncertainty is to look at what those around us, like us, are doing or have been doing in that situation. And that allows us to say, oh, okay, well, this is probably a good choice for me to And of course, there's opportunities for really rational following because you learn about a great new product and also sometimes it leads you astray. So how do you apply what you've learned about trending norms in your day-to-day life? Well, remember I was telling you that when I give lectures and I talk about the various principles of influence and somebody, and I talk about social proof or norms, somebody says, well, I have a new startup or I have a new feature to my product and it's great, but I don't have a market share or a buy-in that I can report. What I say now is, let me tell you about some research on trending norms. (laughs) If you have something new and it's moving in the right direction, say that. It rescues you from the penalty of being new As long as you have merit and are moving in the right direction, you're entitled to tell people of that. I love that. By the way, I should just tell our listeners, more and more people are listening to Choiceology (laughs) every episode, which is, by the way, I'm not lying. Our numbers just keep going up. But anyway, I had to use that little trick there. It's brilliant. (laughs) And what I love about it is its authenticity. Who's steered wrong by that piece of information? Who loses to get that piece of information. Nobody. I have to say, as a parent, also, I'm constantly looking for other ways that I can share trending norms with my my son as I'm seeing him grow up. And all the young kids have their challenges with, you know, they're not, they don't love reading, they don't love writing, or they don't love math. But as they grow, there's an increasing number who are getting into playing chess, you know, playing the flute, practicing, doing homework. And so that's the thing that parents, I think, get to reinforce when we know about your work on trending norms, that we can look for those upticks and highlight them to our budding scholars and so on. That's a great idea. But I'd recommend to always have three data points. That's a trend. So one data point is a statistic. Two, 
represent a change, but changes can go up and down. Changes can reverse. But three, that's a trend. That's an arrow in a particular direction. And that's what produces the mediating causal effect for trending norms. Bob, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I have really enjoyed this conversation, as I always do. Whenever I talk to you, I learn lots of great new things. I enjoyed it as well. Robert Cialdini is the Arizona State University Regents Professor Emeritus of Psychology and Marketing and the best-selling author of several books, including Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion, which has sold over 5 million copies, and its sales numbers just keep growing. That's 100% true, but it's also my way of working a trending norm into Bob's bio. You can find links to Bob's work in the show notes and at schwab.com slash podcast. Jumping on a bandwagon where there's little to no cost is one thing. But when you sink assets into a speculative bubble only to see it burst? Well, the impact on your finances could be severe. The Financial Decoder podcast explores ways you can mitigate biases before they affect your portfolio. Biases like following the herd or expecting recent trends to continue. You can find the show at schwab.com slash financial decoder or wherever you get your podcasts. As you've heard, trending norms can affect behavior for better and for worse. Jumping on the bandwagon is great if it leads to lower water consumption or electricity usage. And there's wonderful recent research from Stanford University psychologists Greg Sparkman and Greg Walton showing that trending norms can be used to spur other environmentally friendly behavior change as well, like reduced meat consumption. I've also found it helpful as a parent to point out trending norms that seem worth adopting to my son. But the impact of trending norms can be harmful, too. It's not ideal when our rush to join a burgeoning trend leads us to spend exorbitantly on plush toys or NFTs or whatever the latest fad may be. The good news is, with an awareness that you're wired to react with excitement when you see an upward trend, you can be more circumspect the next time you hear about a growing interest in your group of friends in a certain type of investment, diet, or electronic gizmo. Check whether the facts match the hype before you let your instincts drive you into a frenzy. You've been listening to Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. If you've enjoyed the show, we'd be really grateful if you'd leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, a rating on Spotify, or feedback wherever you listen. And you can also follow us for free in your favorite podcasting app. And if you want more of the kinds of insights we bring you on Choiceology about how to improve your decisions, you can order my book, How to Change, or sign up for my monthly newsletter, Milkman Delivers, at katiemilkman.com slash newsletter. In two weeks, we explore the world of Korean pop music, also known as K-pop, for a look at how lopsided relationships can affect our behavior in surprising ways. I'm Dr. Katie Milkman. Talk to you soon. For important disclosures, see the show notes or visit schwab.com slash podcast.